Well, friends, the hard truth is that some people are never satisfied. Would you agree with that? Some people are never satisfied. This week I found a fictional story that illustrates this point very well. A lady's grandson was playing in the water while she was standing on the beach, not wanting to get wet. And all of a sudden, a huge wave appeared and engulfed this boy. And as the water began to recede, all of a sudden, the boy vanished, disappeared. He was no longer there. She holds her hands to the sky and screams, Lord, how could you? I've been a wonderful mother and grandmother. I've tried my very best to live a life that I hope you're proud of. A few minutes later, another huge wave comes upon and crashes on the beach. And as the water recedes, all of a sudden, the boy is there standing, smiling, as if nothing had ever happened, splashing around. And a loud voice booms from heaven saying, okay, I have returned your grandson. Are you satisfied? And she responds, he had a hat. <laughs> Open with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Although this story here is funny and, and we can all relate to this kind of attitude, there's nothing fictional, nothing funny about what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 11, verses 16 through 24. This passage is very serious, it is very somber, and therefore we need to consider it afresh this morning. In our passage here, Jesus speaks of the people who are never satisfied with God's approved ways of pleasing him. Friends, God had appointed a certain way for us to draw in his presence to please him, and that is the only way that's pleasing to him. And it is an important passage for us to understand as we think about ourselves and as we consider our own attitude towards Jesus this morning and what God's attitude might be towards us in response. This chapter, as you might recall, began with John's question of whether or not Jesus Christ is the expected one. He's in prison. He is alone. He's looking around. Jesus is performing some signs, but not all the signs that he had promised to perform. And so even though he just a few months ago pointed to Jesus and said, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John begins to doubt. And so he sends his two disciples and he says, asks Jesus, are you the expected one? Verse three, or man, is there another one coming who will do more than you are doing right now? And having answered John's question, Jesus begins to defend John's ministry, saying in effect, listen, people, crowds, if you had understood his mission, John's mission, you would not have only received John, you would have received me with open arms. But that wasn't the case. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus. So the question before us, beloved, this morning is this, what happens to those who reject John's message of repentance and Jesus's message of grace. What happens to them? What is the obvious outcome? 
I want us to begin reading this passage. We'll pick up in verse 11, Matthew 11, and we'll read through verse 24, and we will look at Jesus' answer here for us. Jesus continues, and he says, truly in verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, in verse 15 here, Jesus sums up the first section and he says, you have to respond. You have to respond to what I just said. You have to respond to John's ministry and you have to respond to my message of grace. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Let them consider, hear, understand, and respond properly. Verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating and drinking and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they said, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What a, what a sober passage. Before us is this proposition as we consider these verses. Friends, to behold Jesus and yet not respond in faith and repentance is to bring a severe judgment upon ourselves. To behold Jesus and not respond to his call with faith and repentance is to bring a severe judgment upon ourselves. First here, Jesus focuses in verses 16 through 19 on people's response to John's in his ministry. And then in verses 20, as a result of this response, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus focuses on his response to their response. Since you respond this way, here's the divine response. So we're gonna look at two points here this morning. Number one, a childish response is one that's never satisfied with God's ways. 
A childish response is one that's never satisfied with God's ways. Let's consider what he is teaching here in verses 16 through 19. In verse 16 here, Jesus, he continues his response to the crowds after John's question in verse 3. And for the first time, friends, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus presents for us a word picture, a parable. We'll study parables here just a couple of months from now as we get into Matthew chapter 13. There'll be many parables, but this is the first parable here in Matthew 11. And the focus here of this parable is this generation. Look at verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? He will be comparing the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. Often you will hear him say, the kingdom of heaven is like, fill in the blank, the kingdom of heaven is like, and now he says, the, this generation is like is like. What, what generation? Well, this is the first century generation, the very generation that received Jesus. Friends, the very generation that received Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. They have been privileged to see with their very eyes the Son of God in flesh and his forerunner, John the Baptist. Think about that. This is the only generation in all of world history to witness the greatest of all the prophets pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God. They had witnessed the greatest greatest miracle, which is incarnation. This is the generation. No other generation will will see it, will observe it. In fact, later on, when, when he continues to just condemn these cities and the religious leaders in Matthew 13, he highlights the privilege of this generation when he says, just flip with me to uh, Matthew 13, verse 17, for instance, he says, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. There would have been a, a, a huge line line of folks waiting to see what you see. Just a glimpse, just a glimpse of of Christ, just a glimpse of John in the desert preaching repentance and pointing to Jesus Christ. Yet this generation did not respond in kind. In fact, Jesus will go on to refer to this same generation in the same chapter or in chapter 12, verse 39 and in verse 45 and then later on in in Matthew 16, 4 as the evil and adulterous generation. Evil and adulterous generation. And then the following chapter in Matthew 17, he will also refer to them as unbelieving and perverted generation. Why? Because you have so much and yet you give so little. You have the son of God. And you turn around and say, no, thank you. So that he can say in Matthew 13, 13, Jesus says, while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's why Jesus said in in 11, 15, he who has ears to hear. He wasn't talking about these ears. All of us have them. He wasn't talking about these eyes that all of us have. 
He was talking about spiritual perception, the spiritual appropriation of truth, understanding the reality that is before them. So in Matthew 11, verse 16, what is this parable all about? Well, since this is the first parable, first of all, I just want to make a point that parables are meant to communicate one central idea, one central thought. So what is this truth here in these verses? Well, the parable goes like this. This generation is like children. That's the main thought. This generation is, they're like children. And immediately some might say, well, doesn't Jesus always use the example of children as a positive example, as a positive illustration? And you might be right. Yes, he, he does, but not always. Just consider this for a second. I mean, it's remarkable when you read the New Testament, the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's remarkable to see that Jesus, unlike anyone else, always took the time to reflect on children, to spend time with kids, observe them, observe their play, address kids, bring them, sit them on his lap, use them as a positive illustration of faith. They mattered to Christ. At some point, even the disciples said, nah, we don't have time for kids. And Jesus rebuked them for that. In fact, just a few verses later in Matthew eleven twenty-five, Jesus will turn around and make another positive example, a positive illustration with children out of infants. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, verse 25, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Elsewhere, he speaks of children as those who are precious, as those who are humble. For instance, in Matthew 18, he will say things like, whoever humbles himself like this child will enter the kingdom of heaven. So humility, they were precious. They were used an example of trust, trusting like no other adult. But there's a difference, friends, between being childlike, the positive example, being precious, right, humble, and trusting versus being childish. Childlike versus childish. Being childlike is commendable. Being childish, as we find here, is condemnable. Jesus condemns them for being like children. And this is what the parable is all about. It's about a generation that acts like children who friends are never satisfied no matter what you do for them because it's all about self. They are self-centered. We find here that Jesus in going to these cities oftentimes visited marketplaces where they bought and sold. And so no doubt he had been observing children who were at play in the marketplace, maybe while their parents were buying or selling. And if you had watched a group of children play at any length of time, you no doubt see what Jesus saw then. Some children, you know, they get together, they want to play a game. And so one of the braver ones, usually the leader in the group, he's like, let's play this game. And they name the game, whatever the game is. But others like, no, no, I don't want to play that game. You know, they give him a cold shoulder. No, I'm not down for that game. So he goes around and, okay, let's suggest another game. 
Let's play another game. Maybe the one that he just suggested five minutes ago. And they're like, no, why not? You just, you, you wanted to play this game. Well, well, that was five minutes ago, not anymore. See, that's what children do. We all know children, right? They, they, they love to play games and games specifically that emulate adult activity, grown-up activities. For, for, for some, like our kids, they played before, I don't know if they still do now, they played store. So they buy, get a bunch of items and then we have fake money and so they would just buy and sell. You know, that's what they do. They, they go shopping, they go grocery shopping. Or some play house or some play school. You know, they, they get together with neighborhood kids and you're the teacher today, I'm the student and you're the principal. And so they pass out these roles and, and, then, and then they play together. Well, in Jesus' day, kids were the same kids like today, except they played wedding and funeral what they were playing. I will compare them to children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Children saw these two events, wedding and funeral, probably the most in that society because each one lasted for a week and involved many, many people. And during the wedding, you'd often hear the playing of flutes, which indicated happiness and joy. And whenever the flute came out, then there would be all kinds of partying, there would be all kinds of dancing here, and that's what he alludes to here. But during a funeral, they would sing a dirge. A dirge is a song that's intended to stimulate sorrow and mourning. They would have professional groups who would come out, and instead of hyping the crowds, they would wail. They would mourn. And they would lead these processions and just encourage people to weep, to cry. So what's in view here is these two events, wedding and funeral. But when, when children did pretend play, because kids have the propensity to be selfish, when one wanted to play the wedding, usually it's like, no, I don't want to play a wedding. I want to play the funeral. They threw a fit. They gave each other silent tantrums, right? They said, if you're not going to do it my way, then, then I'm not going to be playing at all. And any adult watching these kids, he would understand that it's all about selfishness, right? And so what do you do? You go up to the kid, you go up to a child, and you begin to talk to your child, and you say, you're going to have to do what others want if you want to be able to play. Buddy, it's not all about you. It's not all about your rules. You're going to have to learn. And so Jesus here, he says, this generation, that is what you are like. That is what you are like. And then he gives support for this illustration. Let me tell you why you're like a bunch of selfish, arrogant kids who are never satisfied. Four, verse 18, four. Whenever you see, whenever you see a, a, a statement of truth, and then the following verse follows up with four. It's like, let me give you the support. Let me, let me explain to you why I am saying what I'm saying. Four, you don't listen to anyone. You are never satisfied with God's approved means to get right with God is what Jesus is teaching here. And two things 
that are taught here in verses 18 and 19. They were dissatisfied with John's message of repentance, first of all. They were dissatisfied with John's message of repentance. When he, John the Baptist, arrived on the scene, what was his message? What was his message? Well, in Matthew 3, we find out that his message was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was the purpose for such a message? It was meant to confront and it was meant to convict a sinner in his sinful way. So if you were to take this illustration here, John's voice in the wilderness was like this dirge that rang out, which stimulated sorrow and mourning. You are supposed to wail. You're supposed to cry. His song was a song of repentance. His manner was one in exile. He didn't feast he fasted, and so did his disciples, as we found out in Matthew chapter 9. His ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Christ's forgiveness, for his mercy, for this good news. Friends, repentance is God's means to prepare the way for God's forgiveness. God's means to prepare the way for God's forgiveness. Weep was his message. Mourn over your sins and look to the lamb. Yet the children of this generation, they didn't want any of that. They wrote off John as he's just a madman. He's a madman running around in the wilderness. He has a demon. Something is terribly wrong with this dude. We are out. We have a better way. We have a better solution. This was God's way of reaching down to them, offering them a way to be saved, but being selfish, they did what? They rejected, said, no, thank you. We don't want to play this game. We don't want to play this game. Well, maybe they wanted to play, I don't know, some fun songs. Maybe they wanted to dance. Maybe they wanted to party, and that's why they rejected John, right? Well, Jesus says in verse 19, well, the son of man came dancing, and he came feasting. And you didn't want to play that game either. They were dissatisfied, not only with John's message of repentance, they were dissatisfied with Jesus' message of mercy, of grace. He was quite opposite of John. If one would characterize his ministry, it might be likened to a wedding. Jesus' ministry was likened to a wedding. In fact, go with me two chapters Back to Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus, he compares himself to a groom. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15 says, and, and Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom, that's me, that's me. For those of you who are missing the picture, Jesus says, that's me, cannot mourn. There's no mourning here. There's no wailing here. There's no sorrow. They cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? No, they can't. But the days will come when the bridegroom is removed, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, snatched, violently taken away, and then they will fast. But right now, no. Right now is party time. It's a wedding time. The groom is here. Let us all rejoice. And even though G, uh, Jesus and John had a same message of repentance because he came 
in chapter four, and he said exactly the same thing that John said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus came on the scene, he was singing not a song of mourning, but the song of great joy, which will be for all the people. Isn't that what angels said would happen? Behold, I give you great news, which will be for all the people. The son of God is born. He was playing the flute, friends, which indicated that this anticipated time was here. The anticipated time when, as Matthew 11, chapter 5 writes, and Jesus has answered, the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have, what? Good news. The gospel preached to them. This was an amazing time. Jesus came, Jesus says, the son of man, I came eating and drinking, eating and drinking. It's right out of Matthew chapter nine, verse 10 through 13. Jesus's coming meant mercy for all sinners. Mercy for all sinners. He came and he was gathering all the tax collector, Matthew nine, verse 10. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors? Why is he partying with them? What is wrong with them, with him? But when Jesus heard this, he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And, and look at this, verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, sinners who need mercy, sinners who need the gospel preached to them. That's why I'm here. And that's why I go to places where they need it most. It's a song of jubilee. It's a song of great joy. They should have been dancing and, and rejoicing that finally there was one who would come, who came actually, and is able to pardon them. I mean, I'm reminded of the prodigal son. Remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. If, if you would go there, I just want to make a couple of points before we move on. Luke draws on this same scene of Jesus eating and drinking with sinners in, in verse 1, Luke 15, he says this, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Jesus was a magnet for sinners. He attracted those who were in great need of mercy. Everybody's flocking to Jesus Christ. Tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. And then in verse 11, we get the story of the younger son who squandered it all and became like the tax collector and sinner. And upon coming to, coming to his senses here, we read that he returns home to the father and the father doesn't cast him out, doesn't give him a cold shoulder. No, I'm not playing this game. The father leaps, the father runs, the father the father places, washes him, hugs him, kisses him, even before he washed him, puts a robe on him, 
and says, let's go and find the fattest calf. Let's slaughter it because it's party time. That's what the father did here. It is time to party. Time to feast. To celebrate. But in verse 25, we read something very striking. Verse 25, Luke says, and when his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard what? Music and dance. He heard music and dancing. And friends, the old son does not want to dance. The older son doesn't want to hear the music. He doesn't want to play. He, he, he doesn't understand what the whole fuss is all about. Friends, the older son represents this childish generation who not only refused John, but also refused Jesus Christ. It's the whole point here. They accused John of, of being not enough. And when Jesus came, they accused him of being too much. You're too much for us. This generation did not recognize the Son of Man, God in flesh, but instead selfishly rejected him. And you know what they did? They couldn't, they couldn't deny his claims. So what they did was they instead attacked his character. He is gluttonous man. He's gluttonous man. Go back to Matthew chapter 11 with me. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus and, and John, they both preached about entering the kingdom. Both came and told them to play the game the way God wants them to play the game. But because of their selfishness and spoiled nature, they would not listen to either one. He says, you are like spoiled kids who would rather John and I change our standards in order to meet your desires. That's what they were doing. You change your standard. And God says, no, my ways are there for you to respond to properly. And then he closes this parable in verse, at the end of verse 19, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is indicated, vindicated by her deed. He says, what you are rejecting is the wisdom of God. By turning a cold shoulder to John and to Jesus, you are rejecting the very wisdom of God. In the end, God's truth or God's wisdom, it will be vindicated, it will be exonerated, it will be proven right. Your dissatisfaction and ultimately rejection of these two men, John and Jesus, is not wise, but foolish. That's what he's teaching here. It is foolish. Don't do that which is foolish. That's why he focuses here on her deeds. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You will prove to be wise and wisdom will be vindicated based on Deeds, don't do what is foolish. Don't be spoiled, he's calling them. Don't be selfish. Don't be childish. A childish response is that is one that's never satisfied with God's way. If there was a third guy, if there was a fourth guy, if there was someone else God would send, they would simply reject all of them. Yet God's ways, friends, God's ways are always wise and will always proven to be right. 
This kind of reminds me of what he closed the Sermon on the Mount with in Matthew chapter seven, right? Who are you building on? Therefore, right, everyone who listens to these words of mine, I will compare to, what, a foolish man and a wise man, right? And the wise man goes and he builds his house on the rock. Jesus says, I'm the rock. I'm the rock. Build on me. Trust me. I'm the rock. The foolish man, he says, nah, sand will do. I'm good. I don't want to dig. I don't want to work too hard. Sand will do. And great was his fall. That's why he says wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Now, friends, what happens to those who are not satisfied with God's appointed means of being right with him? What happens to them? Or what is the ultimate outcome for those who do not respond with faith and repentance to the call of Christ? If you respond with a cold shoulder and if you do not trust Christ, what is God's response to your response? Let's look finally at number two here. A childish response will be severely judged. This childish response, this selfish, arrogant response will be severely judged. And I want you to get this and to understand this, that Jesus is never pleased. He is never satisfied when he is spurned. Never. In verse 20, then, then, Immediately after rebuking them for their foolishness, Jesus drops one of the most jaw-dropping statements ever made to the crowds. He begins to denounce, verse 20, denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He begins to denounce, literally means to reproach them and to insult them. Jesus, who is spurned, begins to insult the cities. Friends, Jesus is never pleased when his offer of grace and mercy is spurned. And Jesus takes us to the final day of judgment. And he says, let me just, let me paint a picture, a real picture. This is no longer parable. Let me tell you what happens to this generation and to every other generation that responds to John and Jesus the way you are responding to me. Why did he denounce them? Matthew is very clear. Because they did not repent. Listen, they, they should have mourned but it was, when it was time to mourn, right? They, they should have sang and danced when it was time to dance. God appoints, friends, both times and the means And we have to respond appropriately. We don't pick and choose. Considering Jesus without responding in faith and repentance brings God's severe scorn. I want you to just focus for a brief moment on this word repentance. Repentance. You know, what do we hear when we hear the word repent or repentance? We usually hear this this idea that, that, that involves a change in behavior. A change in in behavior, like a radical turning away from sin, and no doubt this idea of transformation is is part of part of repentance here, but in this context, I think repentance means a little bit more. 
The word itself, right, to repent means to change one's mind or to change one's attitude, to change one's attitude of the heart, right? You had one position, but now you're different. You had one opinion about something, but now you have a different opinion about something. And it usually involves this regret for having the wrong thinking in the first place, like, oh, You begin to regret and you're like, wow, what did I do with Christ this entire time? You begin to repent. You begin to to wail. You begin to mourn. So while repentance, it does involve this action, right, of behavior, it first involves a change of attitude in your heart. Something changes regarding Jesus. That's the point. Your repentance in light of Jesus And a good clue to the intention of this word here is found in verse 28 later on, which we will study next week in Matthew 11, 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In this context, to repent is to come to understand who Jesus is and what he is like. Even in the midst of this severe judgment, Jesus says, now is not the time to judge. I'll tell you what happens and what will happen later. But friends, you come to me. You have time. Come. You come and you realize by God's sovereign will that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world. And understanding this truth, you cease from trying to live independently of Christ. You, friends, when you repent, you change your mind about who Jesus is, and therefore you become his follower. That's exactly what the the disciples did. They realized, wow, this rabbi is like any other rabbi here. I'm going to go follow him because there's something precious in this man. It's a change of attitude towards Jesus. And this generation would have nothing to do with it. But that's not all. Jesus, he, he then takes it a step further in verse 22 when he says in verse 21, woe, woe to you. Woe to you. This expression, woe, is, is an expression of deep grief and sorrow. Jesus looking at them and he says, how terrible, literally, how terrible it will be for you. Jesus knows the end from the beginning, friends. And he looks at those who are looking at Jesus and responding in unbelief, and he looks at them and he says, how terrible it will be for you. Jesus knows. What a a chilling thing for anyone to say, but how much more chilling it is when the Son of Man says it. And he speaks of three cities here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin was a small village that was about two and a half miles away from Capernaum. Bethsaida also located in this northern region, and it was hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And to this point, friends, most of Jesus' ministry had been done in this region of Galilee, most of his miracles, most of the miracles that we studied one by one in Matthew 8 and 9, they, these miracles were done primarily in this region, most of them around this one great city of Capernaum. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, says 
would have no excuses for not responding to the Lord. They had heard the message with their ears. They have seen the miracles with their eyes. And yet, by and large, they did not respond positively. Yeah, they, they got excited some about physical healing and, and about foods and, and, and things like that. They were amazed at his miracles. But by and large, they did not personally trust Jesus Christ. So then he strengthens his judgment pronouncement against them even more when he compares these three cities to another three great cities. We don't have time to go into all of them, to go into the details of Tyre and Sidon, but similarly, these cities were judged violently in the Old Testament. And those who heard definitely understood what these cities represented. They were all pagan cities, and they were continually condemned by God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, they all pronounced judgment against them. Needless to say, when you finish the Old Testament, one thing you can conclude about these cities is God was not amazed. God was not pleased with Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus says, that if the inhabitants of these cities were here right now and saw what you are seeing and heard what you are hearing, they would have repented with great grief, with great grief in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was this fabric that was made from short camel's hairs and was usually worn right on your skin, up against your skin to express great sorrow. You're not putting anything, anything uh, fuzzy. You're not putting anything soft on. You are expressing great sorrow. And sometimes they would take these ashes and they would put it on their head or they would sit in ashes or they would just throw them up in the air to express emotional distress. And Jesus says that the main problem of Tyre and Sidon was their ignorance, friends, was their ignorance compared to this generation, compared to Israel. Had they seen and heard what Israel was seeing and hearing, they would have repented. Obviously, they knew enough truth to respond, but they didn't, so they were judged in the Old Testament. But that's the point that Jesus is making. He has this hypothetic knowledge, Jesus Christ being God, what would have happened even though it wasn't real. There's a side note here that we need to consider briefly. We, we might be tempted to fault God for lack of revelation. This here, some may read and say, well, why are you judging them then? Right? If they had the knowledge, why didn't you give them knowledge so that they could repent and be set free and reconcile with God? But God, friends, doesn't owe anything to anybody, including revelation. It was just pure mercy and grace that God decided to continue to work with Adam after he failed and continue to reveal himself. Pure grace. None of us deserve anything. If you got up this morning and you were just excited to get to church, to hear the word of God, to fellowship with others, friends, this is a privilege. We received it as God's grace. Can't get used to it. Otherwise, 
God withholding something from us would make him unjust. But that's what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, in verse 23, you're not going to get away either. The city where most of Jesus' miracles had been performed, Jesus' very hometown, a place where time after time he was verified as the son of God. And he alludes to Isaiah 14 and 15. And Jesus says, you too will be humbled. And your humbling will be all the way to hell. Right? Speaking of now judgment theme, late and times when he says here, you will descend to Hades. You will go to hell. And Jesus said it, it will be more tolerable. Twice in this text, it will be more tolerable. Suggesting that there are degrees of punishment just like there are degrees of reward. You will be rewarded in heaven. And you will be punished in hell if you refuse to obey and trust in Christ in light of the greater revelation. Friends, greater light demands greater responsibility. This is what he's teaching here. Greater light demands greater responsibility. Recall where we started at the beginning. This generation was the most privileged generation. Therefore, they were especially accountable with how they will respond. You didn't just get the prophet. You got Jesus and you refused to believe. Guess what your judgment will be? This is a principle that that Jesus often cites in, in Luke 12, for instance, in Luke 12, 48, he says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much of him, they will ask all the more. How were these miracles different from what Jesus performed in the Old Testament? He judged constantly. It was miraculous. Even Tyre and Sidon and what happened to Sodom, it was a miraculous judgment. They've seen these miracles. They would have responded, should have responded. But how were these miracles different? You see, back in the Old Testament, they experienced the miracle of judgment. But here, the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they experienced the miracle of God's grace. God's grace and love, mercy, full forgiveness. That was offered to them. And yet they rejected Jesus. That's how. They were dissatisfied with him. They were willing, friends, to stand before God on their own merits instead of surrendering to Jesus and following him. No, thank you. That's what they said. And Jesus says, if you did that to the son, to me, the son of man, your judgment will be significant, severely judged. The people of that generation had front row seats to the works and the teachings of Jesus, yet they didn't believe. So the question is, as we wrap up this morning, Friends, how will our generation respond? How will you compare? He compares them to children. And so how do we then compare? If Jesus was here, 
how would he compare you? I want to, once again, highlight that to behold Jesus and yet not respond in faith and repentance is to bring severe judgment upon yourself. And, and you know, we can make an argument that um, you are more privileged than even that generation. We don't see Jesus walking in the flesh, but you are privileged to hear the gospel, full gospel. They weren't hearing the full gospel. I, I just remind you, right, that death hadn't happened, resurrection didn't happen yet, and they were liable. We have the full gospel account. We have the full gospel story. Not only do we have that, we have complete copies of the Bible in our very languages in like 37 different editions. So you can understand God's complete revelation. You're not ignorant. Certainly you who are sitting here are not ignorant. But friends, God's patience also hasn't been exhausted today. Jesus, by his spirit, he continues to preach and he can, continues to call out, come, come and rejoice, come and believe, come and be saved. Friend, if you're not a Christian, come and trust Christ. James 4 8 and 10 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. That's, that's the message of John. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. If you humble before Christ, you will be exalted in Christ. The call is don't be childish. Be childlike. Trust Christ. Be wise. Build on Jesus. And for those of us who have repented, the question is are we living like repentant sinners? Are we daily satisfied with who Jesus is? Are we daily satisfied? Are we motivated to love him? And to live for him because he had loved us first because of what he had accomplished for us. When you sin, maybe you sin horribly. Do you confess your sin and continue to trust Jesus as your only means of peace with God? Come. And the call is keep coming. That's where, that's where he goes to next. Come. Come. And keep coming because only in Jesus will you find ultimate rest. Don't become offensive at his ways. Trust the ministry of John. Trust the ministry of Jesus and surrender. And keep on surrendering to Christ. Father, we want to thank you. Help us to do exactly that. This morning, this afternoon. This week, help us to see the treasures that we have in Christ. He is precious. Help us not to be like children who enjoy the, the wrapping of the present rather than the present. Help us to be like those who understand true value of the one who came and laid his life down for us. Encourage us.
Persuade us again and again by your spirit of this truth, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.